Hey everybody, it's T with the UFOs want to tell you something. So, I'm just going to be uploading some of Dr. Carla Turner's old lectures to preserve her work. And so you guys can get a better view of the Turner thesis. Not only that, as you all know, Dr. Carla Turner holds a dear spot in my heart. I believe if anybody is the closest to solving the UFO phenomena, it would be her. She did extraordinary work. She was an abductee. And this is my way to preserve her work and get it out to you people. My listeners. This is a lecture of the Ozark Mountains in 1995 that she did. So I hope you all enjoy Okay, let's have your attention. You didn't mind that longer than normal break, did you? Okay. You won't mind a full two-hour meal break either, will you? Okay. Uh, our next speaker is one uh, whom I'm sure is known to all of you, or should be, from the uh, book she has written, beginning with End of the Fringe, and then with Taken, and uh, most recently with Masquerade of Angels. And, of course, all those are available out there. Her title today is The UFO Masquerade. She has spoken here before. We're always very, very pleased to have her back, uh, since she's now in Arkansas, especially. Uh, let me present to you one more time Dr. Carla Turner. Thank you. Can anybody see me out there? <laughs> I need a coat carton, somebody to stand on here. <laughs> All right, how about sound? Are we okay on that? Well, well for, before we get started, and someday my eyes will actually get used to this and I can see who you are out there. I just want to mention something. I, I haven't been able to sit in on many of the presentations so far because I've been working out front. And I don't know if anybody has made a big to-do yet over the fact that this is the seventh Ozark UFO conference. Has everybody already celebrated that and I missed it? <laughs> well, this is the sixth one that my husband and I have been to, and uh, I really want to thank Lou Farish for one more excellent weekend, if I survive it, that is. And, uh, I, you know, Lou really makes it feel very natural and effortless and so easy to be here, but I think Lou would agree with me that that's probably an illusion. Um, I think it takes hours and hours and weeks of work on his part for us to come here like we do every year and listen and share and catch up with all our old friends and for me at least meet a lot of new ones and all the while we're getting you know so much of the recent information in this field from some of the most committed researchers and reporters and investigators out here although maybe I shouldn't say committed um, <laughs> maybe I should say dedicated instead <laughs> I don't think any of them have been, have been committed lately, and let's just hope it stays that way. Um, I'll tell you, though, with all the apprehensions, I, I hate to get serious on Saturday morning, but with all the apprehensions I have heard voiced in the UFO community and other communities over the past year about all the escalating social and political and scientific and religious repression and suspicion, and polarization 
and even fears of some new incarnation of totalitarianism, though, you sort of have to wonder just how long we're all going to be able to continue to do what we're doing this weekend and to research and report and educate ourselves and others about the real nature of this phenomenon. So let's all take advantage of it while we have the opportunity here. Many of us um, attend a number of these conferences, and I think we read a lot of the relevant books in the magazines and journals, and we have a great network uh, of friends and connections all over the country, all over the world, in fact, with whom we share information. And I just want to say, no matter what our differing views may be about the ultimate nature of this phenomenon, I think we all must agree we're living in a very exciting world and a very exciting time. We all feel this. The more involved we are in the field, the more deeply we feel this. But the truth is that the rest of the world isn't watching what we're doing. I would remind us all that the UFO community is very small. It's very isolated from mainstream society in a certain way, although we're all out there right in the middle of things individually. And the things that we take for granted, most of society takes for science fiction, our fantasy, our hoax and they pay very little conscious attention to us. Now the reality of this phenomenon is not part of their perceptions for the most part, and until it is, I, I feel that we have a strong obligation to try to do something about that. As an abductee and a family of abductees, I know that it's real, what we're dealing with. As a researcher and a reporter about other people's experiences, I know that it is widespread and that more and more people every day are becoming aware of just how real and pervasive and globally important this agenda of improbable contact and intrusion must surely be. I think the nature of this phenomenon admonishes all of us to become researchers and reporters and most of all educators. The whole world should be watching and listening, don't you think? And we need to do it, that's our job. But instead, right now, as we're meeting here, and delving into so many different aspects of this field, most of our friends, our families, our co-workers remain in that blissful state of unawareness. So we all have a job to do. But that's not to say that no one out there is listening and watching, however. And one of the things I want to discuss here is the information about those folks who are paying attention to us, our own government, which we will get to a little bit later. I'm going to be very limiting on the topics I discuss here because I could talk the rest of the day on the two books and the information that uh, I've been fortunate enough to learn from the people with whom I've been doing this research. And I'm not going to do that to you. It's Saturday. If you were partying last night like I am, the sooner we get to the cartoon and get out of here, I think the more rested we'll be for the things coming up the rest of the day. And there's ex some extremely important talks going to be going on later. But I'm going to limit my talks today to just a few topics uh, that I feel are, are crucial. And these include the nature, or the, I'm sorry, the use of illusion and deception in the UFO and abduction scenarios. And also the nature of some of the physical procedures which abductees report experiencing during these encounters. Since, since 1992, when my family's personal account was published in Into the Fringe, I've been engaged in two fairly lengthy investigations. And the results of this work, we recently published um, in the books Taken, Inside the Alien Human Abduction Agenda, and Masquerade of Angels. 
And although Taken was published first, um, I'd actually been working with Ted Rice and Barbara Bartholick on the research that led to Masquerade quite a while before the work in Taken. So I'm going to refer to Masquerade's material first this morning. And then I'm going to look briefly at the reports of the eight women who contributed their accounts to the material in Taken. And as I do so, I just want to point out again several important correlations to some of the things in, in the material from the women in Taken that had already turned up in the work that Barbara and I were doing with Ted Rice. So both of these discussions will be brief, and I will take the final half hour or so of my allotted time for a, a video presentation of some of the many drawings and photos and a video excerpt that I, uh, from women involved in the Taken project that I was unable to include in the book. That's one of the things I really uh, wish we could have done was to include a number of these illustrations. So I'm going to do that today to try to make up for what we were not able to do in the book. <clears throat> in 1991, when I first met Ted Rice, I was naturally intrigued by his memory of a mass abduction experience in Shreveport, Louisiana. <clears throat> but I had no idea that looking into his report would lead me into areas that I'd never had to deal with before in this field. Uh, accounts of angels and apparitions, of bargains made with ghostly guardians, of spiritualist philosophy, and psychic work assisted by spirit guides. I mean, all of this was part of Ted's extraordinary experiences, but it was not anything in my field of expertise, believe me. But in listening to Ted's accounts, I began to see evidence that was more familiar to me, thank God, uh, evidence that was very consistent with UFO sightings and abduction reports that I'd already come to know about. And since Ted had recalled an abduction involving a number of people, I wanted to see, first off, if there were any confirming <coughs> evidence that we could locate. And as we proceeded, Barbara and I, with interviews of many of the people from Ted's past, as well as his more recent experiences in the, in the present, we did find that such evidence actually was available and sur surfacing in consciously recalled events attested to by a number of witnesses. In fact, uh, four of Ted's neighbors <clears throat> described unusual events, also consciously remembered, from the night of the mass abduction that Ted had remembered in 1989. Now, two of these witnesses were so disturbed by their memories of these events that the fear level was so high they wouldn't even let us include their accounts in the book. They shared them with us privately. So I would point out one thing for those of you who are not involved in direct investigation and working with abductees, that contrary to all the debunkers' claims that abductees and UFO witnesses tell their story for some personal gain, it's actually very difficult for those involved to risk coming forward with their accounts. And I would say for 99% of those who do make their experiences public, the resulting liabilities often outweigh the assets that they may gain from doing so. After thoroughly interviewing Ted about his conscious memories, um, we both felt that there were important gaps in several of these events that were worth investigating with hypnotic regression. And I'm not going to take time here today to argue the merits and the problems of regression work, but I will say that in my experience, it's proven to be a very useful and manageable tool of research, and that without it, I think we would be left to deal only with alien-controlled information which abductees are sent home with after their experiences. 
Now, it's important to note uh, that at the time Ted began his work with Barbara and with me, he had been involved for most of his adult life in spiritualist work. Uh, an extraordinary series of encounters that he had in Sun Valley, Idaho, with a mysterious woman, beautiful and young, who called herself Maya, first introduced Ted to metaphysical matters and also made him aware of his own psychic abilities. I would remind you that Maya is the Hindu term for illusion, by the way, and that Maya also turns up in a number of other people's experiences, often in the guise of some Pleiadian star being. Ted, at the time of meeting his Maya, had no thoughts on these lines, no information about such things, and certainly took her simply to be the very mysterious, beautiful woman that he experienced. In the account in, in Masquerade of Angels, however, you will find that there was more mystery to Maya's presence there in Sun Valley than Ted had any idea of at the time he was in, engaged with her. Still, coming face to face with his own abilities through some of these encounters and time spent with Maya, Ted was very reluctant to pursue these ideas or this, this ability he apparently had. And it was several years later before circumstances propelled him into psychic training and his involvement with the spiritualist church. And when he did make the commitment to go forward this, with this work, Ted went forward full tilt. Uh, in fact, he was a co-founder of the church's first congregation in Georgia. And he began doing psychic readings, which he is still doing today. Ted was convinced that the metaphysical understanding he had found was of God and that his work served God's higher purposes as revealed to Ted by his spirit guides from the other side. <laughs> but intermixed with Ted's paranormal events and psychic work were some startling encounters, encounters with apparently non-human entities, including, in 1989, of course, the abduction along with some of his neighbors. And at that point, Ted discovered that perhaps a different force had been intruding into his life for a number of years. And this was a force that his spirit guides had never bothered to mention, explain, and that his spiritualist training did not delve into either. So Ted needed some new information, and uh, this led to our contact and investigation. And as it progressed, it became clear that the research into all of these extraordinary experiences could take several years. But after the first two years, we felt that the information we had gathered was important enough to communicate it as soon as possible, albeit going on with the research. And we're continuing to do that to this, this point right now. We stopped and did the material uh, organization that resulted in Masquerade, which was published in 1994. And we have full intentions of following up this report with everything else that Barbara and Ted and I have continued to uncover and are continuing to pursue at this point, as soon as it's feasible to get this material back out to you as, as a sequel, a follow-up, an ongoing investigation. A full account of our first two years of work is found in Masquerade of Angels, but for brevity's sake today, I'm going to focus on only three aspects of the uh, alien agenda as it relates to the material that Ted and Barbara and I have, have had to deal with. The first matter is the intrinsic deception at the heart of this agenda, and that's something that's become clearer with every new report that surfaces. 
Whether we choose to call it screen memory, telepathic mind control, technological mind control, or virtual reality scenarios, the entities involved in the abduction phenomenon employ masterful illusory capabilities. And I don't think the importance of this fact can be stressed strongly enough. It must affect all of our thinking and our research when it comes to these alien-human contacts. In Ted's experiences, for example, there were several occasions where such masquerading techniques were employed, and I could spend, as I said, the rest of the morning just dealing with these, and I'm going to be making very brief references and hope you'll maybe want to read about the rest of it in the book. One instance involved the appearance of Ted's deceased grandfather on board a craft into which he and his grandmother had been taken when Ted was a young boy. Um, I think I spoke about this a couple of years ago when I was uh, first working on Ted's material and I didn't identify that this was Ted's story I was referring to. The scenario involved persuading his grandmother uh, to engage in a sexual activity with an non-human entity and when she refused to do so saying she had only ever made love with her husband and he was dead the aliens produced the dead husband in another instance uh, Ted watched a scenario that surely was not occurring in normal reality terms uh, I call it a virtual reality scenario and this began shortly after he had heard a very quiet sound like helicopter blades <coughs> And in this ongoing event, after the helicopter blade noise, uh, Ted watched as a, a human-looking entity dressed in military clothes uh, pop through the ceiling into the room, holding a young child that was very, very similar to Ted's appearance at the same age. And Ted was told that uh, they were going to return that which had been taken from him. And an account of what followed from that, again, is, is in the book. And uh, I won't take time to recite everything there to you. But the virtual reality event, there were certainly no human paratrooper popping through the ceiling carrying a young child in reality terms. But the illusion was quite as real as you and I here today. But perhaps the most illuminating of such events that uh, we in, were able to investigate involved Ted and another woman, a woman, who witnessed a third person, another woman, undergoing her own virtual reality episode, again marked at the onset by the sound of a helicopter. Now, some of you may be quick, as they say in the OJ trial, to rush to get judgment on this and conclude that these events were generated by some terrestrial, governmental, or military covert mind control operation. After all, we've got helicopter blades out there. But it should be noted that only the targeted person in these events heard the helicopters, while others in the same house or same room did not. I don't think our terrestrial helicopters are that selective in the noise they generate. I, believed, uh, I believe now that the reported and confirmed details in all of these reports are strong evidence against accepting consciously recalled alien encounter reports at face value because of the illusion capabilities, because of the screens, and because of the virtual reality technology that we have witnessed being manifest by these entities. I believe that if we build our theories on, the, on such information, the consciously reported information only, 
We're building on sand, on illusions that the aliens create for us, and I think to confuse and mislead us. Now this is not to say, however, that all alien encounters are virtual reality events, because there is also plenty of very strong evidence for the physical nature of many of these encounters. So to be perfectly objective, the definition of abduction would have to include any event or scenario that is generated externally for the targeted person, whether it be a physical encounter, a virtual reality scenario, or a telepathic con contact. Now, a second important discovery from Ted's investigation, and this was important at least for me, was the possibility of cloned human bodies produced by these abductors. And that's the second thing I'd like to, to talk about briefly today. In the mid-1970s, um, a memory of a childhood event surfaced in Ted's mind during the night while he was sleeping. And in an altered state of consciousness, he got out of bed and went to his typewriter in the middle of the night and wrote out this memory as a story. In 1991 and 92, when Ted and Barbara began a series of regressions, it occurred, it popped up in these events, this scenario that Ted had recalled as a story, but a very different version of that basic story emerged. Uh, a version in which he went through what can only be called a horrific experience, in which his original body he perceived as being killed and taken away, and his essence, for lack of a better word, we could call it soul energy or whatever term one would like to use, was contained temporarily in a black box, placed on a counter, and uh, transferred shortly thereafter into a cloned copy of young Ted's body. This was his perception of what occurred with him, and this is the first time I had ever heard of such things really in any detail. Now, when we made our external investigation, interviewing people who were part of Ted's family and friends at the times many of these things occurred, several pieces of corroborating items did come out, all of which I tried to prevent, present fully in the book, but just briefly, one of the most telling, for me at least, was interviewing Ted's mother. And at the time that Ted recalled being transferred into a different body, his mother recalled the suffering he went through for weeks afterwards, feeling that his body was on fire, having to soak him repeatedly in ice water trying to bring him some comfort, and noting that the childhood diseases that Ted had had before the cloning recurred afterwards. <coughs> Excuse me. The third point that I want to correlate uh, with information from subsequent investigations in the accounts in Taken concerns the possible involvement of human, apparently military, personnel with certain abductees. Now, if nothing else, this involvement of some authoritative agency within our government should tell us that our decision-making powers that be, the structure that pretty much controls how we deal with this phenomenon as well as with everything else going on in our society, takes this phenomenon very seriously. I would guess that most of you here have already learned about the many hard pieces of evidence that do reveal the government's knowledge uh, of and involvement with the UFO question. Um, such classic presentations as um, those in clear intent 
and Above Top Secret can point you in the direction of getting your hands on the paperwork generated by the government that, that makes it very clear they have involvement they have never been willing to discuss with the public. Now the evidence for our military involvement with abductees, I will admit, is much less well documented, certainly, but for the individuals who are on the receiving end of this activity, it is very compelling and very traumatic. There are two basically different bodies of data relating to the possibility of human involvement. Now the first body of data includes such external things as phone taps, male interference, unidentified human agents who photograph the homes of abductees, photograph abductees themselves and follow them, sometimes even breaking into their homes, making threatening phone calls, uh, apparently able to make certain medical records disappear, uh, also alleged alien artifacts disappear, and it goes all the way to the extent of direct confrontations between the military personnel and certain abductees. Sometimes to the extent of abducting the person and using a number of interrogation techniques to elicit information about the person act person's activities with the aliens. Now, Ted Rice um, has not been the overt target of such involvement <coughs> But the accounts uh, of the eight women in Taken, which we'll get to in just a few moments, show that four of the eight women have had a variety of these experiences in their own uh, series of events. But the second body of data concerns, concerning human uh, involvement deals with facilities, typically underground, in which aliens are often seen to be working with human, military, and scientific personnel. For me, and I think for all of us, probably the big question is whether these facilities and this level of cooperation actually exist, or if abductees report these events because they've been pre presented with some type of unreal scenario, much as we're presented with the showing of a movie when we go to a theater. Until we have located such a facility, externally verified its existence, and expose the activities going on there that abductees report, this question's got to remain open. All we can say for sure is this. A number of unrelated accounts include descriptions of such facilities, usually with reference to either scientific or military activity, although there is a third set of reports that describes something much more disturbing, and this is uh, one of the things that turned up in the case with Ted and with certain others who are part of a great deal of investigative activity on Barbara's part and my part that are, well, I'll just try to give you a little brief scenario of what Ted consciously recalled about this third type of human underground facility. In the mid-1980s, Ted uh, awoke one morning with conscious memories of an altered state event that occurred during the night. He was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time, and part of the journey that he recalled from the night before included flying over a fairly desert area to a remote compound where many people were herded together. He didn't remember being involved in any actual activity, but only in seeing several areas that were accessed through this above-ground compound 
into a large underground installation. He remembered consciously that the humans in the compound seemed extremely despondent, quite miserable, and he recalls shouting out in anger to a couple of these people sitting there, or the people who were doing the things to the humans, you can't do that, you can't treat our people like cattle, and being outraged, entirely outraged by whatever it was he had seen, but consciously only recalling the outrage, only recalling his protest, and not recalling what it was he had seen that, that generated this protest. Now, this account is also included in Masquerade, and it is one of the memories that Ted and Barbara have been able to explore with regressive hypnosis after the time that Masquerade was written. So we have uh, more information to report on this, and I'll try to make sure that the report on all of our work that sheds new light on what we've already presented in Masquerade will get out to you as soon as possible. What Ted recalled at the time of the regressive hypnosis is without doubt outrageous and horrifying to any human sensibility. And I would remind you that such scenarios have not yet been shown to be a factual reality. I would also remind you that Ted is by no means the only person to have remembered such details of areas like these in this underground facility in which abductees report seeing human bodies physically processed and that very similar accounts have come from other people's conscious recollections as well as from hypnotically retrieved descriptions. If such facilities don't exist, I think that we still have a big problem in understanding the nature of this phenomenon because we should be concerned to understand why such a grisly, horrifying illusion would be presented to so many abductees and what purpose that could conceivably serve for an alien agenda. After drafting this initial report on the investigation with Ted and Barbara, I then became involved in the project that resulted in Taken. And this was a special study for me. Uh, I wanted to do a specific set of reports that had homogenous backgrounds so we could make some comparisons and correlations with the material. So in order to have a more homogenous group for the study, I chose eight women from various parts of the country who had contacted me after reading Into the Fringe and with whom I had begun initial uh, sharing of information. I let the women relate many of their experiences in their own words rather than trying to take over and give you a second-hand account of, of something that in first-hand would be much more meaningful to you. And I hope as the subtitle inside the alien human abduction agenda implies, that the reader would be able to immerse into these intimate experiences, which are so very difficult to relate without the words of the people who have gone through them. After working through the eight different case reports and doing as much investigating as we could manage considering the widespread geograph geography of the women's locations, I then correlated the reports and the accounts and referenced over a hundred different details about the entities, the procedures, the communications, and all the secondary events that make this abduction phenomena so complex and confusing. And I've included uh, several pages of this correlation as part of Taken. There's also a lengthy comparison chart and an explanation or an analysis of the corroborated um, 
details. For quick reference, you can look through the small chart and then there's a, a larger discussion afterwards. But the correlations that we focused on covered 10 categories. Types of contacts, types of entities, types of physical exams and procedures, types of other activities, types of communications, settings for these encounters, reports on the bodily effects from the encounters, reports on external effects in the environment of the abductees, and after effects on the abductee, as well as correlating certain um, items of personal history, such as ethnic background, etc. Now, for the purpose of this brief presentation this morning, I'll only focus on a handful of examples from the reports of these eight women, but I would like to identify them in their location. Pat in Florida, Polly in New York, Lisa in Alabama, Beth in Puerto Rico, Angie in Tennessee, and Jane, Anita, and Amy from three different areas of Texas. Now, to begin with the evidence of human involvement, Four of the eight women, namely Pat, Lisa, Beth, and Angie, have reported face-to-face -face contact with military personnel in a, in a variety of situations. I think you will find the most surprising to be that of Pat's family's experience. And it is confirmed by all of her living relatives, and there are only a couple left after uh, the length of time between the event happening and us beginning this investigation. The members of Pat's family uh, in 1954 included Pat at the age 12, a brother and a sister, her mother and stepfather, and a grandmother all living in a rural location. And they were part of the entire family having an alien abduction and subsequent contact by the military. One day after the event in 1954 in which alien entities took the family members on board a landed craft in the backyard of their farm in Indiana and carried out certain physical procedures. One day after this happened, Pat and her siblings that are still alive report that a contingency of men in military uniforms and military vehicles arrived at their farm, sequestered the entire family for several days. One day after this occurred, how did they know it happened? Pat remembers being drugged and being interrogated about the alien encounters. She remembers being told repeatedly that it did not happen and that what she remembered was not real. But this was not Pat's only encounter with the military. As she experienced another conscious abduction just two years ago, and this time she recalled the presence of a non-human entity in addition to the military personnel who took her from her home in Florida in a military truck to a rural location where an underground facility existed and where she was taken inside and examined. Both Lisa and Angie also reported interrogations by human agents and abductions by human personnel in which they were questioned and physically examined or underwent certain other physical procedures which I recounted it or let them recount uh, in their own words in the book. Beth, who's in Puerto Rico, also recalled an, ab an abduction by human agents and a fifth woman, Amy, remembered an altered state scenario in which there were both alien and human-looking people present in an underground installation. Although, as she says in Taken, 
there were reasons to doubt the strictly human nature of some of the men she did encounter there. They looked perfectly human, she said, except for their eyes, which had the vertical slits. Most of the eight women in Taken also report the typical type of human interference signals, such as phone disruption, helicopter overflights, and other aviation activities over their homes that would indicate a terrestrial source. And I've even witnessed on one such occasion, uh, while talking on the phone with Angie, an interruption and a comment by the human who was monitoring our phone conversation. As we were, Angie and I were discussing on the phone a statement made by one of the humanoid-looking aliens uh, in one of her recent experiences. She asked me if I thought the alien statement that their origin was somewhere in the area of Cassiopeia was a possibility. What did I think about that? And as we discussed this, a completely human male voice intruded into our phone conversation after a little electronic zipping noise and said, quote, there's a lot of them out there and we know where they come from. <laughs> and then he zipped off the line and that was, you know. So, you know, it's not all secondhand information that I'm reporting. We do have occasions to witness this ourselves. There's also a number of reports from the women that indicate a variety of illusory scenarios, one of the points I wanted to stress today, sometimes involving sexual situations, sometimes involving prophetic dreams or visions, and sometimes clearly screened memories of real encounters that left them with false recollections rather than with the real details of these events. I'd like to use my remaining time to discuss uh, the nature of the physical procedures, however, reported by many of these women, and these women are very typical and representative cases for so much of the, the material reported that never gets to you or to me because it's kept very private and very confidential. Because I think we need to be aware of just how physically oriented so much of the abduction agenda really is. In addition to the bodily effects you're already probably familiar with, including rashes, hair loss, eye problems, nausea, and for women especially, gynecological problems and irregularities, the greatest area of concern, in my thinking, is that of the implants, uh, the devices that several of the women, like so many other abductees around the planet, describe as being inserted into their bodies. I think the most intriguing information um, that I report and taken, and that in fact I've come across in all of this work, has come from Amy's account of this altered state scenario I referred to briefly where she was taken to an underground installation. She felt this was what she perceived. And uh, I would remind you as I go through this brief presentation that in every encounter, the human's state of consciousness is externally altered and controlled in every encounter. And knowing the virtual reality capabilities and the screen abilities, we need to remember not to take everything as being the gospel truth that people come away remembering. Now this has, however, been explored with some very thorough regress regression work, and so I do feel a little more confident in what I'm going to tell you about Amy's memory of this event today than I would if it were strictly her conscious recollection. In part of this scenario, Amy recalled going into the underground room uh, full of equipment typically described from other alien encounters and other underground facilities, by the way, and seeing a, a quite a large number of alien entities working here in this environment. But as I said earlier, there were also several human-looking men present. 
<coughs> at least human looking except for their eyes. One particular alien in the group that Amy perceived to be a female interacted with her uh, directly. And this female alien began basically with an apology to Amy for the intrusions that some of her race were making into human lives. This entity proceeded to explain that she and her group were working with some humans to try to counteract what the rest of her group was doing to us. All right, so we've got to get the setup here on what Amy is being told. As the entity explained the negative nature of these intrusions to which, for which she was apologizing, she then told Amy she wanted to remove two implants. This is one of the things they were doing to help counteract this negative intrusion activity, was to, Im to remove implants that the other group was putting into humans. And Amy recalled having a, an implant removed from one of her ears and another smaller metallic implant removed from the base of her neck, her skull. Amy was told by the aliens several things about how these implants functioned and she reports that she was not happy to hear that they could be used to control the implanted abductees in any number of ways. Now the area into which the newer implants are inserted, Amy was told, corresponds to the part of the brain known as the reticular formation and it doesn't have anything to do with zetas, by the way. <laughs> Uh, thanks to uh, Marianne Friedman, who's here this weekend from Arizona, and who was uh, wonderful enough to share a lot of her research into the medical aspects of this brainstem activity, I want to just briefly refer to this, and then on Sunday morning, Marianne is going to go into a little more detail at one of the mini sessions, so I encourage you to listen to this material. The functions of the reticular formation that Marianne got me started looking at uh, are staggering. And I'm sure some of you have been through this already. For me, it was just information I had to re-correlate with the um, accounts of the implant reports, especially those uh, that Amy had, had relayed to me from her friendly implant-removing alien. The function of, I'll just read you a very brief statement from Nigel Calder's book, The Mind of Man, one of the earlier uh, classics of our modern time, on brain activity and brain research. And here is a quote about this reticular formation area. If the primary job of the brain is to enable its owner to respond effectively to events, the strongest claimant for mastery is not the roof or the cerebral cortex at all, but the brainstem. The brainstem net is well placed to monitor all the nerves connecting brain and body. It knows what is going on better than any other single part of the brain. The brainstem net exerts its authority by sending out impulses which stimulate or inhibit nerve action throughout the brain and the body. It can override activity in the spinal cord. It regulates the signals from the eyes, the ears, and other sense organs, thereby providing an agency for selecting what is to be attended to from moment to moment. And it is this part of the brain that Amy was told was now the most common area for the newer alien implants to be located. If the aliens are indeed placing control implants into this area, then they would be able, as you've seen from this just very brief description of the brainstem activity, they would be able to control everything from the person's level of consciousness to the bodily functions 
to the memory and thought processes and the assessment of all sensory input. Now, if you don't think the implications of that kind of control are overwhelming, think again. And I hope Marianne will stimulate some ex exciting conversations with you tomorrow morning about the possibilities of this area of the brain being the point of alien control through which abductees can be kept awake, put to sleep, put in an altered state, made to get up and do things that they would not choose to do, made to say things they would not say, made to forget things that they have said and done, etc. All sensory input being controlled by this area through the implant, any number of realities can be presented to the abductee that are not really there. And what one remembers is controlled through this area, so the repression of memory of these events is very easily controlled as well. I think the implications are staggering. So also, however, are the implications of the final point I want to make this morning, and that is the reports on the cloning of human bodies that I previously encountered with Ted's investigation. In the women of Taken, two of them women, Pat and Lisa, both remember being shown cloned copies of their bodies, just as Ted reported having a cloned copy of his body. But the explanations that Pat and Lisa received from the aliens about these cloned bodies are highly contradictory. As I talk about in the book, Pat, whose alien experiences, now this is the woman who had the 1954 uh, family abduction in Indiana, followed by the military's arrival and sequestering and drugging and so on. Pat had had, throughout her alien encounters, a very religious atmosphere or overtone to these events, instrumented by the aliens. Uh, for instance, the first time uh, there on the farm that the family was abducted, when, when Pat's grandmother began to, what we would say now, freak out and start praying to Jesus for help as these little grays came into the room, a blue beam of light came through the ceiling, just like in Star Trek, and uh, Jesus popped out of it and said, in effect, uh, they're with me, it's okay. <laughs> and as I'm very fond of saying, and I don't know why I like this so much, except it always gets me, I asked Pat what Jesus looked like, and she said, oh, he was beautiful. He was so awe-inspiring. He was blonde-haired and blue-eyed, <laughs> just beautiful. And I said, hey, Pat, you know, uh, look back at the New Testament. I don't think that's what Jesus probably looked like, historically speaking. And it went right over Pat's head, and she said, with, you know, tears of joy in her eyes, well, this one did. <laughs> they knew how to push Pat's buttons. She was a very religious person. She was also told, essentially, that the angels, I mean, the aliens there with her were angels, and that their job was to prepare new bodies, as mentioned in the Bible, for the coming return of Jesus and the resurrection. When Jesus comes down with the Legion of Spacecraft to uh, carry out this uh, changeover, well, it's the aliens who are in charge of providing those new bodies. You want to see yours, Pat, they said. So this was wonderful. Pat is now assured that uh, when the resurrection comes, she's got the vehicle for it. Lisa, on the other hand, down in Alabama, was told that the cloned copy of her body could be used in a very threatening manner. In effect, that it could be used to replace her if she didn't cooperate with the alien program and that no one would know the difference. Not quite the same story as the resurrection. I would point out that such an implication of threat and replacement was also made to Ted Rice 
during an abduction when he was a young teenager and there were several other teenagers abducted with him at that time and cloned replacement threats were made also at that point. So these are the three points that I really wanted to make briefly this morning before I, I do the presentation of the video uh, with illustrations from the women in Taken. And like a good English teacher, I'm supposed to summarize what I've said, and I'm going to do that right now. For you to consider three points, hopefully. First, our own human authorities are seriously concerned about and involved with some aspects of the alien abduction agenda. If they take it seriously, it would behoove us to do likewise. And also, when human agencies are involved, there has to be some sort of trail of events. And I think thus a very strong possibility exists for some intrepid researchers to get out there and uncover and follow this trail. There has to be a record of human involvement. Second, much of this agenda clearly has a physical focus that should raise some very strong questions about some of the alien claims to be here on a primarily spiritual mission. The implication of both the implants and the reports of the clone bodies are so potentially explosive that a great deal of effort toward investigating these allegations is certainly called for. If we're really serious about wanting to understand the motivations of these entities and the purposes of their contacts with us. And third, I think we need to recognize that deceptions are employed at almost every level of this interaction to keep abductees from knowing about the actual events and the actual entities involved in these encounters. To me, maybe I'm just a suspicious sort, this implies that there's something. So here's what I'm going to do. Every couple weeks, I'm going to post Dr. Carla Turner's lectures so they can be more widely accessible and everybody can hear them for themselves and kind of get the Turner thesis that I go with. I think her work should be preserved. And I own her lectures on DVD because the one thing I worry about is that whoever has them on YouTube, they get deleted. Or you can find them on the one podcast, which is Hidden Experience Podcast with Mike Cleland. I've had them downloaded since 2013. So you can find them there, but I want to preserve them on here. So along with my you know, every other week podcast, I'm going to upload some of those too. Because her work is very important and needs to not be forgotten. Now that being said, I'm going to make an episode of its own of just the Turner thesis alone. It might even be the one right after communion. So keep that in mind and keep a look for it. And I'm going to give a couple examples of the Turner Thesis that people haven't connected the dots on before. An example of this would be like the Pascagoula case or the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins. And we're going to take a deeper dive into the Turner Thesis on an episode all of its own. Just quick cases, you're not going to hear me reading off everything about them. But I wish to demonstrate better the Turner Thesis.